0: Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Vernice Miller-Travis, and I'm the Senior Advisor for Environmental Justice and Equitable Development at Skia. I co-host our regular monthly series on diversity, equity, and inclusion, Environmental Justice and Equitable Development. As part of this series, we talk about how we can make our communities more sustainable, livable, and equitable. Today's podcast was originally recorded at the New Partners to Smart Growth Conference, and our guest is Ms. Tracy Strum Gilliam. Our topic of discussion today is transportation and equity. Tracy is the Director of Mid-Atlantic Client Solutions at PRR where she works on projects with the Johns Hopkins University and throughout the Baltimore, Maryland area. Tracy is a certified transportation planner who leads PRR's new Baltimore office, which opened in April of 2016. She focuses on strategic planning and environmental justice analysis, grassroots outreach and consensus building. With her hire, PRR plans to further expand its transportation and infrastructure projects nationally, where they originally began their work in Seattle, Washington and in Washington, D.C., Prior to assuming her current position at PRR, Tracy served for 15 years as the senior supervising environmental engineer and planner at the engineering firm of WSP Parsons Brinkerhoff, where she worked on major transportation planning and development projects among several other areas. Tracy received her Bachelor of Science degree in civil engineering from Morgan State University and a Master's degree in environmental planning and management from Johns Hopkins University. She is a graduate of two of the premier institutions in Baltimore, Maryland. So, good morning. Ms. Tracy Gilliam is our guest. Tracy is a transportation planner with PRR Consulting. She is based in Baltimore and Washington, D.C. She is one of my homegirls, although I only see her at this conference, at the New Partners to Smart Growth Conference. You would think we lived way more than 30 miles apart. And whenever we see each other, we say, okay, we want to talk about this, 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 and that. So, this morning on the Infinite Earth Radio podcast, we are going to pick up some of that conversation. Tracy, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you're from, where you grew up? Absolutely. So first and foremost,
1: I guess my formal professional name is Tracy Strum Gilliam. Bernice knows me in a more personal nature, but I am married to Paul. (laughs) Uh, We have two little boys. We live, reside in Maryland. I grew up in Columbia, Maryland. Okay. Moved away for a while. I, I say often that I am a Jim Rouse baby. And it it probably shaped my philosophy about people and their needs and meeting um, them in the center. I'm an environmental engineer and planner. I've been in the transportation business for over 20 years. And it's something that I love. I specialize specifically in environmental justice analysis, Mm -hmm. community impact assessment, Mm -hmm. and public outreach and engagement. Mm -hmm. And so those humble beginnings, being in a very diverse community and growing up with a great sense of planning and scale and an early understanding of sustainability before it was a common term, Mm -hmm. probably has influenced and shaped my professional career and the type of projects that I work
0: on. Tracy, tell our audience a little bit about the city of Columbia, Maryland, and its uniqueness.
1: Oh, it's wonderful. So, Columbia was a planned community by Jim Rouse. And people don't often know, but it was put together by little parcels of land that were either farmland or wetlands. And a lot of the parcels were owned by black families. And a master plan community was built with a village concept. And so, there were a bunch of little villages, and with the, all the connecting pieces. Um, connecting to a village town square or uh, um, the mall area. Mm-hmm. And I grew up there in the 70s and it was a wonderful area. It's very diverse. I'm um, one of the first planned communities with a diversity model that also includes inclusion for low income populations. That was the model that Jim Rouse wanted. My father was one of his mentees. So I understood from the beginning about planning and housing and zoning and providing communities that really build upon one another and create a sense of place for all to be accepted.
0: So it was a a designed, planned community meant to be an integrated community, integrated racially, culturally, and economically. Economically,
1: exactly. And then now, if you include the additional markers, it includes everything. It's Mm -hmm. a, a very... It was a great place to go up, grow up in. Mm-hmm. I often say I have a good friend that's with the local NPO, mm-hmm. and she grew up in Columbia, too. And, and Monica and I always say, you know, it planted the seed. She wound up going in the social work route mm-hmm. and then wound up in transportation. Mm-hmm. And I wound up going in the environmental engineering route, mm-hmm. became a planner, and still wound up in, in transportation. transportation. I really believe that transportation is a great equalizer in addition to education. You can provide educational opportunities, but if you can't get people there, if you can't get people to additional exposure, whether it's the arts or culture or just different communities or to the educational facilities, it doesn't really matter.
0: So, there, there are a couple of hot button issues right now around transit oriented development, and I want to ask you your thoughts about that. And then I want to revisit an ongoing conversation that you and I have every time we get together, red line. which is the Red Line <laughs> in Baltimore. And for those of you who haven't heard, of Rant about this, you go hear me rant about it on the podcast today. So, Tracy, the first is there's been a lot of of articles written, particularly in the Washington Post, which is my new hometown, new meaning the last 18 years, versus the New York Times, my other hometown newspaper, about the fact that transit-oriented development or communities where they are growing around a transit-oriented development plan are the ones that are becoming the most gentrified in our metropolitan area, but around the country. And then there was just another article in the Washington Post just this week about that those communities are not really living up to that sort of parking um, walking uh, ratio that everyone thought was sort of the perfect balance. So since you are a transportation planner, what do you think are are the benefits of transit-oriented development, but what do we need to tweak and rethink? Because it's clearly a driving an outcome that was not what was originally intended. Absolutely.
1: And I, I also think that the uh, consequences of TOD vary based upon location and existing condition, you know, where those developments were, were put in. Primarily, I think some of the great things that are happening with TOD is uh, the access to transit, the diversity of a neighborhood, being able to provide multiple services in location. Mm -hmm. So some TOD developments have shopping, they have daycare centers, they have parks and cultural establishments in addition to the transportation and the housing. The best TODs have mixed housing, whether it's apartments and townhomes and maybe uh, the McMansions Mm -hmm. that that we hear about often. Mm -hmm. In terms of gentrification, this is a conversation that I think a lot of us that do EJ work talk about. And right now, if I was to move into a TOD development, I would be a person of color who would be potentially a gentrifier. And that's just the basis that the fact that I, I have a, a higher income, a family, and we're new. But I do think that gentrification, to its point, can be slowed down if there are programs in place, if there's coordination with the housing authority, if there are set asides that are made with the developers for commitments for uh-huh. moderate and low income dwellings in that development area. Uh-huh. If there is an understanding of what the community that already resides there needs, doing some early on community engagement and planning upfront to understand that that TOD development part of me should be a bridge mm-hmm. and should enhance the existing community. So I'm a big proponent. There was a, a previous study that was done a couple of years ago for West Baltimore Mark. And in part of that TOD study, the folks that were doing it went in, and they spent time with the residents, they had meetings to understand what the needs were. And the needs were, they wanted better grocery stores, they wanted access to daycare, they wanted potentially a library in that area. And so even though that plan hasn't moved forward, those are the type of conversations that need to go into everyday planning to ensure mm-hmm. that the neighborhoods are not seen as an island within a community, mm-hmm. one. Two, again, like I said before, making sure that the developers are committed and that the carrot is kind of held over them. Mm-hmm. You know, you're getting uh, set aside and you're, you're getting reduction in the in, in taxes. You know, these are the things that we want from you in exchange. Mm-hmm. And then the, the connection to transit is so important. But what I'm also seeing a lot of times too is some TOD developments are also becoming like many little transportation hubs. So it's not just rail like most people would think, but it's mm-hmm. rail and buses and,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, shared used cars. Mm-hmm. So. You can really make TOD work, but that early planning has to be in place, and there needs to be a partnership between the governmental entity and the private developer that's coming in. And in some cases, some governmental entities are getting involved in the development aspect, and they're keeping units for themselves to be able to Uh build and operate within these plans as well.
0: So I want to apologize to the audience. Tracy and I are friends and colleagues, so there may be a little shortcut conversation that's going on here. (laughs) So let me just back up for a minute and say she mentioned Mark. Mark is the commuter rail system in Maryland that one line goes from West Virginia to Union Station in Washington and through sort of western Maryland another line comes from Baltimore and uh, northern Maryland, Perryville, down to D.C. through Mm -hmm. Prince George's County where I live and there's one other, there's three lines the Penn Line, the the Camden Camden Line and and the western Maryland line anyway, so that's what we were talking about, the MARC train and so you gave me an opening so a couple things I want to ask you about I want to go back to the West Baltimore station and that transit-oriented development. The first thing, though, about the gentrification issue is that the things that seem to attract people to these communities where people already live and have been holding it down for decades, if not a century or more, it's something about those of us who live in those communities that don't seem to appeal to the people who want to come to the community. So I really want people to come and live and experience all the great things that I have known all my life from Harlem. And I, I moved from Harlem I'm 18 years ago, but that is the thing and the place that makes me who I am. But today, Harlem is a very different place than the Harlem that I grew up in. Much different. And what I'm struggling with is, well, it always had the identity that it had. It always had the cultural Touchstones. It always had the vibrancy of that community, it was about African American and Latino culture. But now that it has been rediscovered, as the young people say, it's been Columbus, right? Mm-hmm. Now people know where it is. They want everything that's in the community except for the people that made it the community. And I'm still struggling with how to translate that because I think if we can unlock that code about people really being able to live together, in fact, this is what I talked about at the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference when it was in Baltimore this was the subject of the presentation that i gave in that conference which is if we don't learn how to live together we are going to be constantly undermining the concept of smart growth and sustainability all we're doing is moving a population of people who used to live in the suburbs into the central cities and the people who lived in the central cities into the suburbs and the exurbs and you can go back even further than that
1: they all used to live in the city together. <laughs> together together right and a population moved out. And St. Louis is
0: a classic example of of that reality. uh,
1: That population that was was left followed. Yes. And then now we have folks that are returning. But, you know, I think that speaks to a larger picture, which is about our culture, right? So there are a couple issues that you brought up. One is, why are people moving back into the city? Why? want Reduced commute time. Right. Better quality of life. Right. Right. Cultural vibrancy. Cultural vibrancy. Why are these communities that were on the fringe now, the hot button items Mm -hmm. or the hot ticket areas? they were less expensive they had been neglected in some way so affordable housing affordable right so if you look at home prices in Soho versus in Harlem 15 years ago right if you really want to start out you would go to Harlem right right? and so I think it's about this this cross cultural conversation that needs to be had and all that starts in this base and community engagement really the things that you learn from your grandmother Mm -hmm. treat people how you want to be treated indeed Open the conversation. Have a dialogue. You know, if I was a real estate agent in Harlem, that would be part of my, my speaking points, right? When I'm bringing a new family that isn't, that isn't from Harlem and is moving in. Do you understand where you're moving? Do you understand the importance of this community? Mm-hmm. Do you understand that there are cultural references that make it what it is and that you have to also adapt to that? Yes. And, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting, I was at an APA conference a couple of years ago. American Planning American Association. American Planning Association. I'm sorry I'm using no all these acronyms worries, no worries. today. But there was a, a session that talked about noise level and someone moving next to a church that had been there for 100 years. They had service on Sunday, choir rehearsal on Tuesday, midweek worship on Wednesday. And the new residents were making noise complaints. And the church was saying, and the parishioners, well, we were here first. And the reality is, is that when you move into a new area, you bring your background with you, right? Indeed. But you also have to make sure that you open up your horizons to understand those that live there before you. Because that's what attracted you to that area. It's all of that cultural vibrancy. It's one of the reasons why our kids go to school downtown in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. We want them to be able to walk to the library. We want them to see all different types of people. And um, really help that to expand their horizons
0: as they move forward in their lives. So just a little bit of conversation about the red line. So the red line was a transportation card, a light rail um, system that was designed to run from one part of Baltimore, Security Square, Uh where the Social Security Administration is located, in case people want to know what is Security Square, it's actually where the Social Security Administration is located, and bring, go through many communities Mm -hmm. in West Baltimore, um, through East Baltimore, Baltimore, Mm -hmm. which is a deeply underserved part of Baltimore City, in to downtown so that people could get between the two job location centers and exactly. move through their communities. So Tracy, the
1: eastbound location that we're supposed to end was John Hopkins Baby. Right. And then they traveled down through downtown to get to the east side.
0: So Tracy, in my opinion, as a planner myself, and who just worked on a little bit of that in the Harlem Park community and Edmonston with a couple of other groups, and I had never seen any kind of transportation planning, any kind of planning anywhere that was as thorough as community-oriented, as culturally in tuned, as sustainably designed as this. In my opinion, it should win. If we had an award that we gave in a planning community, this should be the gold standard for transportation planning. And our our now not-so-new governor, who came in and one of the very first things he did as governor, was to zero out the funding and back out of that process, which would just have brought so much economic revitalization, not just along the corridor line, but deep into the communities. You you were a part of that team. What was it like being a part of that process? What was it like when the new governor canceled that plan? What can we do to bring hope back to those communities? Yeah, so I, I agree.
1: The Red Line Project was a wonderful project. It was great being a part of the team. I worked on the project from 2006 until 2015 when the project was canceled. And the work was phenomenal. The work with the communities were, was phenomenal. Governor Hogan did cancel the project, as you stated, and primarily he ran on a platform of reducing state spending and not increasing taxes. And so while there was an appropriation that was made, a congressional appropriation that was made, so there was money coming from FTA to fund the project, a good bit of the match would have been coming from the state. state. And then there were some in-kind local match dollars that were coming from Baltimore City. The biggest hang-up, I think, was uh, one of the alternatives, the preferred alternative that was selected had a tunnel and an underground transfer station in it. And the governor's plan to provide upgraded service in the area was through a new project called Baltimore Link, which is enhanced bus service. Mm-hmm. So the project is the subject of an ACLU lawsuit. WCP Legal, Defense, Legal Fund, Defense Fund Action, Title VI um, Lawsuit, uh, Title civil rights Multiple Claims, and I will say this. One of the benefits of being in a progressive state is that Maryland had multiple projects that were going after FTA funding, Federal Transit Administration funding, I right. caught it, right? right? And that was the Corridor Cities Transitway, which was in Montgomery County, the Purple Line, which did move forward, which is in Prince George's County and Montgomery County, and then the Baltimore Red Line, which was in the city. And while the Red Line would have served more of an urban market, it would have been a connection to reduce east-west commutes from over hundred uh, hour and 45 minutes to about 45-50 minutes uh-huh. for users, the full east-west connection. It wasn't meant to be under him. And that's fine. I think my reaction to it at first was one of disappointment. It was a great project. It was a wonderful sense of belonging and working with the community as a part of that project. We had um, community ambassadors and, you know, full-scale outreach. You components. had a red
0: line compact right, between had communities compact in the city in the and city. the
1: state. And there was a lot that was done. But um, one of the things that I learned early on in my career is always to think positively in the next go-round. And so there are pieces of those plans that still can be implemented by Baltimore County and Baltimore City to improve transportation. Mm -hmm. The basic route that the governor is now using in Baltimore Link doesn't provide for uh, route service, improved enhanced service on Edmondson Avenue, which was the core Mm -hmm. um, route in the West Baltimore segment and other areas all connecting. But one of the drawbacks is is that when you give that much federal funding back, it really doesn't go off well. And so I just hope that in the future that we'll be better suited to be able to chase that level of funding again for a transportation project. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's also important, and we've seen projects across the country go through this, where there are states that are running on a reduction in terms of dollars spent in transportation, not increasing taxes, that directly impacts our transportation system. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is those communities then go into repair cycle and just maintenance of what they have instead of versus growth. Growth in future planning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I hope that at one another time in my lifetime I'll be able to see the a resurgence of a red line mm-hmm. type project in mm-hmm. the Baltimore area. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I do know for a lot of residents now some of the early folks that were in agreement with the project, when it was canceled, came out and were like, what happened? Gee, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds familiar. <laughs> and so I think it, it speaks to the fact that, one, sometimes our projects go on too long mm-hmm. because people can't see it being a realization... You know, be, the being time horizon is too long. In their timeline, they can't get behind a project. Yep. And then when they go away, they're disappointed. Mm-hmm. So it speaks to being able to get in, get projects done, get through the environmental process quickly, and be able to get into design and construction so people understand that that 20-year timeline horizon for planning and studies and then design and construction can be a little bit shorter, mm-hmm. four, five, six years, and that's something that's more attainable and fresh for them.
0: So what a great lesson and for us who are planners to think about is the process that we engage in. We want to do really thorough, expansive community engagement. We must do it in order for those plans to be resonant and to really be effective. But we've got to be able to shorten that time frame for how long it goes from concept to actual shovels in the ground if you want people to really realize that revitalization and to maintain that funding. Because as we can see right now, political cycles change. So your future and your project planning cannot always be tied to a political reality. It has to be tied to a people and a local governance reality. Exactly, Vernice. And I think one
1: of the big pieces that's a lesson learned, if you can't wait till projects start to engage with the community, Hello, you have to have an ongoing dialogue whether there's a project or not. So you know exactly who to tap into immediately when these studies come about. That You already know what a neighborhood is expecting, what a community needs, and you're balancing that with the transportation decisions that are made.
0: So if y'all were here with us today at the new part. Partners for Smart Growth Conference, you could come to the session that SCEO is doing this afternoon that talks about exactly these elements that Tracy just talked about. But Tracy, I just want to end the conversation here but say that you are really one of my heroes. Watching your work that red line was a thing of beauty. Even though we were not successful in getting it, a lot of us were taught a lot of lessons about how to be better at doing the things that we do and how to lift people up and get them what they need. And so I'm just in, in awe and I wish I could see you more at home. But we we'll thank you for that. Happen. We will have to make that happen. And thank you, Tracy, for taking time out of your new Partners for Smart Growth 2017 conference experience and being part of the Infinite Earth Radio podcast. We really appreciate you. Thank you, Tracy, for joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciate you carving out this time to speak with us. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time at Infinite Earth Radio.